0: Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Our guest today is Sarah Maslin, the Sao Paulo Bureau Chief and Correspondent for The Economist. Welcome, Sarah. We're delighted to have you on the show.
1: Hi. It's really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Sarah, let's begin with Brazil. Can you describe the Centrão to our listeners and explain what the recent end of the Lava Jato means for the future, say, of Lula, elections, Sergio Moro, judiciary, legislative relations? What, is all, what does it all mean?
1: OK. I think the first thing is just to, um, to unpack that term, central, so uh, central is the word for center, plus the, un, which uh, which means something is kind of big, but also often something is kind of ambiguous. And so the, the central means the big center, uh, but it's what's used to refer to a group of political parties in congress uh, particularly in the lower house of congress but these parties exist in in the senate as well that are um ideologically kind of difficult to pin down and often will change their positions on a given issue based on what is more convenient for them and these are really traditional parties in brazil that uh thrive in in places uh, where they use funding, public money, and sometimes donations to, to get votes and use those votes to, uh, you know, get into the political system and, and then kind of get things done. And, and, and there's this whole sort of churning system of, of how it works. Um, and I guess, I mean, one of my first stories here in Brazil was going to um, to the state of Alagoas in the northeast and uh, and to a little town named uh, Murici, which was the the place of the Calheiros clan, a, a very powerful politician named Henan Calheiros, and he's from a party called the MDB, which is is sort of not technically right now considered a centrão party, but it, it's a, a big and powerful party that sort of you know, you've got some states where this party will support the left and some states what will support the right. And, uh, and it often kind of does deals with the same Trau. And so I guess for me, one thing, um, you know, that I learned in the in trying to understand what the same Trau is, is, uh, you know, the role of, of kind of, of money in, in Brazilian politics and how, how difficult it can be for a voter when there's, I think now about 30 different parties in, Congress. And so when you're voting, um, it can be really hard to know exactly what this party represents. So, um, you know, that's where the money comes in, because it's, you know, it's the person who's out there with the good slogan, or the person who's well known in the community already, or the person with, you know, offering the bags of food. Um, And so this is, I guess, relevant now, because Bolsonaro was elected um, in 2018, promising to do away with this kind of opportunistic uh, politics here in Brazil, and Brazilians were upset about, about massive corruption scandals, but they were also just upset about politicians not being able to make things better. Crime rates were really high, the economic crisis was still hurting, and they started to blame politicians, I think, in a, in a kind of unprecedented way, especially because of the corruption that had Um, that have been revealed by the Lava Jato scandal. So Bolsonaro comes in, says he's going to sweep things up. He's not going to kind of do dirty dealings with this central politicians. And um, I mean, fast forward, we can get into kind of the causes uh, of why that's changed. But now he has just basically, you know, firmed uh, an alliance with these central parties, helped to, support and get elected uh, to central leaders for the head of the Senate and the lower house. And this is all happening at the same time as, as the kind of quiet end of the Lava Jato investigation. So it's been winding down over the past couple of years after a series of, of political and uh, judicial defeats and was finally officially disbanded a couple of weeks ago, and I was kind of shocked when I first got here in 2018. It was lava jato, lava jato every single day on the front of the newspaper, and um, and you know that the little tiny headline that it had been disbanded was kind of halfway down the newspaper, didn't even have a photo uh, attached to it, and um, I almost missed it. We almost. You know didn't get our little we have this weekly page at the front of the economist where we have kind of major news in each country i almost didn't manage to get that in on time because i i, I almost didn't see it
0: well yeah and and so what does it mean that the lava jato now has has ended i mean uh, will that have repercussions um next elections um who might run
1: um, yeah that's okay a good, uh, that's a good question and one of my kind of follow-up questions and trying to think about about what this means is, you know, if there weren't a pandemic, would people be in the streets protesting? Will people be in the streets protesting if there are corruption scandals, which there are, you know, bound to be because there have been for so long and, and a lot of the kind of judicial uh, progress that had been made is kind of being unwound. And I, I have to say, I'm I'm not sure what the kind of long term impact had been. I mean, it feels to me like Brazil is kind of backsliding to the static equilibrium that existed before Lava Jato. So people, you know, on the one hand, feel like some of the corruption problems. Been dealt with because they saw people thrown in prison and and you know Lula went to jail and and so I think on a really superficial level there was a little bit of catharsis, but then also um, I mean other things have kind of taken the focus the pandemic the economic situation and so I think once Bolsonaro came in despite this kind of crazy cognitive dissonance that there are, are corruption scandals happening even within his own family. I think the public is sort of like desligado or, or turned, you know, turned off a little bit, and, and isn't focused on that the same way that they were a few years ago. Um, but I, I mean, I, as it's looking right now, um, Lavazza has kind of gone in the direction of. of I'm going to say it wrong, but uh, Mani Puliti, the 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 Italian corruption investigation, that was kind of really the victim of a backlash, and um, and I think that. You know, that, that unfortunately, the kind of anti the the structural change, the law kind of independence and, and, and instruments that could have allowed for a deep long-term change and not just throwing people in jail, but actually preventing politicians from, from committing corruption in the future, that a lot of that kind of stopped halfway and, and, and might sort of even get undone and wiped out even further.
0: On the economic front, the, the economy seems to, to be stalled. Um, the economy, um, there's the constraint of um, the existing cap on real spending and what seem to be stalled privac- privatization plans. Um, so, have you seen any sign of disenchantment on the part of foreign capital regarding the risk of investing in Brazil, given the current political uh, quagmire, so to speak? And does the private sector still support its hero minister, Paulo Guedes, or has it realized that the Bolsonaro administration um, is not interested in promoting a neoliberal agenda?
1: Right. So I think, um, I mean, the, the first answer is is you know yes that there if you look at a few kind of indexes from the past um, months and and. And years, you know, you see that uh, foreign investment has fallen, that, um, you know, right now, the interest rates, everyone thinks that interest rates are going to, to go up, long term interest rates have already been rising and, and the central bank is sort of set to start raising the SELIC, the, the kind of um, benchmark interest rate going forward because of this fiscal crunch and the sense that, um, you know, if if government's going to keep spending without uh finding ways to to save primarily by you know snipping some of the privileges that a lot of the most powerful people in in brazil have including politicians themselves then then that's going to have a cost and that cost is going to be inflation to avoid that they have to start raising interest rates but i guess that's my superficial answer and i think that there's a kind of a I mean, it's tricky when you try to think about the reasons why uh, foreign investment is falling and i think that it's not as simple as as all kind of the 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 risk on the economic front because investors are are happy to invest in in risk in in certain contexts so i think i mean that some of the other things that are are worth taking into account um is i mean the global context that, that we've just gone through this massive global trauma and there was you know, a kind of uh, people fleeing back to to safer currencies like the dollar and, and other countries perhaps that offered a, a, a less um, chaotic response to the pandemic than Brazil has. And then you've also got this, you know, this uh, environmental situation here in Brazil, which, um, you know, which I remember speaking to someone from Faria Lima the you know the kind of Brazil's version of Wall Street about maybe a year and a half ago and this person telling me i think that foreign investors are stopping investing in Brazil partly because of the Amazon and the the kind of fear of the um the risk in associating with a, a country that is going so against the norm on the environmental front and i actually think i mean this is a story that i I'd like to get data on that because I, there is that sense. You, you hear that from people. Um, and you know if you get a kind of an, a political analysis or economic analysis report, they will mention this as a factor, um, but how much each of these factors weigh is is really tricky, um, which is why I think I mean, it's, it's much easier to just kind of look at what's going on within Brazil and Brazilian investors who are most of the investors in kind of the stock market. And so you can see the movements last week Bolsonaro got rid of the head of Petrobras and indicated that he was gonna start kind of going in a more populist economic policy direction and the stock market fell and the dollar went up. And then a couple of days later, he you know, he, he kind of said, well, no, actually this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna pass through this, this bill into Congress that'll allow us to save. And so then the stock market went up again and the dollar went down. And so you do see that, I think you have to take a bigger picture and a, long, a more kind of zoomed out longer term look. And, and on that front, there are reasons to worry and I think um, you know I think what happens with Paulo Guedes will probably be you know the, the prime thing to watch in um, in coming weeks and months he's he's kind of signal that he's unhappy whether that signal of him being unhappy is picked up by the president and and the kind of sentinel and they realize that they have to kind of at least do the minimum of, of Guedes's kind of pro-market agenda to keep him from leaving which would really be chaos or whether he throws up his hands and leaves, I think that's gonna be a, a really important thing going forward, both economically and in terms of um, of Bolsonaro's chances in 2022.
0: You, you spend your days talking to people and in previous time actually meeting with them. And you've probably come across a lot of stories that don't make the headlines, but I'm looking to see if you've got any bright spots to share with us about uh the future of the country given this grim scenario of covid and everything else but have you come across either examples of new civic or political leadership or community groups doing admirable work that is just underreported but shows that there are forces progressive forces at work uh that will um, have their day in the near future
1: yeah um I mean, I guess I have uh, three things to mention. I'll be brief on, on all of them because I, I kind of, I don't want to suggest that any one of these things is, is the one thing that will kind of turn things around. But these are, I think that part of what I, I guess I'm trying to get across by talking about three things is that it's really fragmented. And so these are three things that I think, you know could make a difference. That said, um, it's overwhelmingly depressing. So here's the three things. Um, one of them is that there in the last um, election cycle in, in 2018, there are kind of a handful of new young politicians who were elected into Congress with a very different idea of what it is to be a politician and a, a policymaker. Uh, I guess maybe that's the difference, is that they're they're really focused on, on being a policymaker more so than on the kind of Negotiating and, and uh, dealing part of uh, of politics and so I'm I'm thinking about um, you know one lawmaker named Tabata Amaral who's from here in Sao Paulo Filipe Rigoni who's uh, I, I believe from Rio Grande do Sur. Um, and and these uh, these politicians are kind of doing things a bit differently in that they uh, are willing to go against their parties because they believe in something and Tabata actually got kicked out of of the of the PDT that. Uh, Cito Gomez's party that she was a part of because she voted in favor of pensions reform. Um, but I think that these, you know, these leaders, um, they, 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 because they're young, they show that there is this sort of, I guess, return to, to politics among the younger generation. And what I've been told by people here in Brazil, and, and it'd be interesting to hear if you agree with me on this, but is that, you know, after the military dictatorship, a lot of of people who were really interested in service and and serving society um, didn't really want to be involved in politics because of you know the trauma of of the dictatorship and and so it took kind of maybe a generation for this this sense of of public and and civic duty to come back and and so I think that we are seeing the sort of seeds of that and, and projects trying to fund these politicians, because I think the hardest thing, if if you are someone thinking that way and you have the desire to get elected, is that it's just like really hard because there's all these ways that parties have, you know, managed to to, to have control over the system. Another seed just uh, really quickly is um, ESG funding has just totally exploded in the past couple of years, or maybe even just the past year, Um, partly, and this is really interesting, as a reaction to Bolsonaro being so Uh, against the tide on, on the environment. And, uh, and so you've seen a lot of companies in Brazil actually embracing ESG, I think in a way, probably to make, you know, to save their own reputations, but that also has some uh, potentially uh, useful opportunities in, in terms of environmental protection in the Amazon and and generating carbon credits. And and just there's a lot more kind of feeling of of, it's not just the NGOs and the environmentalists anymore. You're seeing business leaders in Brazil also fighting to try to change what's going on. And, and I'm working on a story right, right now on this, and it'll be interesting to see kind of whether the U.S. change in U.S. government is able to um, kind of pressure the government here in Brazil to, uh, to change course. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing that I was really impressed by during this pandemic was the the way that indigenous groups and indigenous leaders in in different parts of Brazil to organize, um, to lobby most local governments to get support during the pandemic. And so I guess the dark side and the sad side of the story is that the federal government was so completely useless that it blatantly ignored orders from the Supreme Court to provide uh, medical care and, and kind of barriers to protect indigenous communities. That said, the uh, you know, local leaders in, in, you know, throughout the entire country were able to do a lot using um, local governments and you know, their connections to politicians and NGOs. And um, you know, there are some, there's some, I guess, silver linings to the, this really tragic story, which is that I think that that kind of organization will be important for them going forward into, into a really tough um, period of history.
0: Great, let's move on to another uh, region that you know well, El Salvador. And I was wondering if you could um, give us an update on what's happening there.
1: Well, um, I love talking about El Salvador and I I miss it very much. So it's it's bittersweet for me to talk about it because there are reasons to be quite worried right now. they have just gone through a round of, of legislative and local elections, and the president, Nayib Bukele, who is the most popular president in Latin America, something like 90% approval ratings, he's um, not that much older than me, and he, uh, he has really managed to capture this sense of frustration and disillusionment that Salvadorans have with their politicians for a lot of the same reasons that the Brazilians have been frustrated, um, corruption, bad public services and so on. Anyway, he um, his party just competed in, in local elections for the first time and snagged a super majority in Congress, which is really going to make him able to to kind of do his agenda. And and in some ways, you know, some people might argue that 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 will be a good thing because there are things that become easier once you have a majority and, and, you know, he has social projects and and investment that he wants to see. But I also think that there are, are some serious reasons to worry because Bukele has not shown an interest in Democratic institutions and um, the kind of civility that that has, you know, been lacking. But also, uh, I think El Salvador has really strived to to kind of keep and 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 not just civility, but peace since the civil war in the 1980s uh, ended in 1992. And and so, um, I mean, scenes like. Bukele going into Congress with a bunch of armed uh, soldiers behind him in order to try to pressure Congress to pass the spending bill uh, last year. And then um, you know uh, uh, after a, a political event in the campaign, uh, two people from one of the parties uh, that the left-wing FMLN party were shot and killed in, in kind of circumstances that were unclear, but suggest a return to, to political violence. And I guess, I mean, it's, you don't want to exaggerate things. And I'm not in El Salvador. So um, I I guess I I would encourage people to kind of read what local media has been reporting or or people, you know, including our correspondent who's who's been there for The Economist. Um, But I, you know, I'm I'm quite um, apprehensive and, and, and would like to go back as well. I'm working on a book about a village in El Salvador where there was a massacre in in the 1980s and this village voted overwhelmingly for Bukele's party in, in this election so um you know even though he has kind of tried to obstruct justice in in the case so it's um it's striking to see how kind of populism works in in this country and very sad
0: Central America, especially the so-called Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, is is expected to be the Biden administration's focus in the region. Um, What do you think we should expect from from all of this? Or are the skeptics right when saying, you know, nothing substantial will, will happen over the next couple of years?
1: Well, I guess I'll offer, I'll sort of offer to... Thoughts. One of them is that Biden really knows Central America very well, um, much more than perhaps any president in, in, in recent US history. He's, he's been to the region. It was he was really behind a kind of previous effort during the Obama administration to get funding to address some of the root causes of, of migration. And he, uh, my understanding is it, it was kind of him also who managed to convince the, the Guatemalan ex-president uh, to, to keep the CSIG, this, this international uh, UN sponsored corruption investigation unit in, in power. And, and the president at the time wanted to get rid of it. And, and Biden, I guess, made a call and said, listen, you know, this is not gonna be good. If you get rid of it, you are not, you know, the US isn't gonna like that they kept the the task force and it ended up um you know exposing massive corruption by that president and he was uh you know he was forced to i think he was forced to resign or, or he was um he was booted out um so now you know now we've had trump in in, in office for a number of years and and a lot of the the kind of um, corruption efforts in Central America have also stagnated and, um, you know, we're seeing some really worrisome stuff in, in Honduras with the, you know, with the president who I, I reported on, you know, an election several years ago where there were sort of strong signs of, of uh, election fraud on the part of of, of his party. And, and so I guess one of my questions is, you know, what, to what extent is, is Biden going to be willing to kind of put pressure on some of these these leaders in Central America and how will that come coupled with the, the aid that these these countries really need. Um, and and I mean, this was a question I thought about a lot when I was living in in Central America from, I guess, 2013 to 2017 or so, and there was Alliance for Prosperity funding coming into the region and. Um, I mean, it's really hard to begin with to, to make sure that development funding is kind of successful because it's very bureaucratic and, you know, how do you measure the impact? And, and and so that's tricky to begin with. And then how do you balance the need for this funding to reach the citizens with the fact that in, in you know, in the case of, of I guess, all three Northern Triangle countries right now, there are serious reasons to, to worry that the leaders of these countries are, are kind of not taking them in uh you know in in a direction that would would strengthen democracy um so i think that that's going to be that's going to be a tough mix to handle
0: yeah corruption has been a constant feature in the region um given your travels and experience how does the current state of corruption say in brazil differ from the other countries that you know well and what is the likelihood of brazilian civil society or government getting it under control with so many reforms that are stalled? Um,
1: well, I'll answer the first question because it's easier. I think the likelihood is very low. Uh, I think that corruption is in a, a kind of essential part of, of politics here in Brazil. And um, despite the hope that Lava Jato would be the beginning of a longer process to cut down on that, um, Lava Jato, as you said, has has kind of been defeated in a lot of ways and a lot of the incentives for corruption, um, whether it's the kind of design of the political system and the the weight of parties and the large electoral districts and the amount of money that is needed to fund campaigns, all of that is is still there. Um, I mean, I guess your question about how is corruption different here in Brazil, one of the first things that comes to mind is in some ways, how there is a, a real gradient of, of corruption and 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 you know, everything from the suitcases full of money and and handing over bribes and, and things that came out in Lava Jato, and in a lot of cases did lead to judicial cases. But then you've also got um, is something that I guess we would probably call not corruption, but more like pork and, and patronage and, you know, what they call it here in Brazil, toma um, la You vote for this bill, I will uh, free up this bit of the budget for you to go and take home and, and build uh, this in your local town. And all of that is is necessary in projects. If, if we didn't have that, then, you know, towns in, in less kind of central places in the country would would probably never get the infrastructure works that they need. And this happens in the US as well. But I think in Brazil, the there's a really there's a gray line between these two different kinds of money and, and politics. Uh, and 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 so often um you know I think often one of the things that that has been hard, I guess sort of politically and, and, and judicially has been to to try to separate and, and, and decide where the line is going to be in Brazil. And and, um, and I see that, I guess, more, more here than I do in, in Central America. I mean, perhaps because there's just so much more money here in Brazil. Both the government it has more money and businesses have more money. So there's more just like sloshing around. Uh, whereas in, in Central America, uh, you know, the, the amounts of money that um, Tony Saka, you know, embezzled, were massive and and striking, but a real fraction of the amounts of money that were kind of passed around here, you know, involving Odebrecht and, and Petrobras, and and uh, and so you there is a kind of a difference of of scale and of kind. Right.
0: So living in the region um, and on a personal note, what what strikes you the most about the COVID pandemic um, in the region? Um, um, stories, um, sort of um, human stories that don't really make it to, um, to the inside of The Economist, but things you've seen or read um, that, that, have, that have stuck with you and then maybe who knows in the future you'll come back to that experience and write about it or talk about it. But um, have you come across any experience uh, directly related with the pandemic that will be with you for quite some time?
1: yeah um well, like, I guess one thing that I have been thinking about a lot lately is the city of Manaus in the Amazon and and this is you know something that we have written about. It has made global headlines. but I think um, the reason that that it's so kind of striking for me is is Manaus was you know the first city to have its hospitals, breakdown and 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 you know not be able to have people and people were dying in, in river boats trying to get to the hospital and dying outside the hospitals and and this all happened way before the rest of Brazil was feeling the pandemic. Um, and you know it felt kind of like such an awful thing that had happened there in Manaus and you know a warning for the rest of the country. And then, you know, the whole country went through this really rough period. Uh, and then I went to Manaus, you know, when cases had really come way, way, way down. And I did a story about collective trauma and the way that this experience that people had gone through, you know, was going to have lasting effects in, in how this the community functions and and how, you know, not just how individuals are, are mourning their loved ones, but also in in you know people's anger at, at the corruption that was involved, in, and and um, and how this sort of compares to other mass traumas from disasters in different places around the world. And then, you know, I kind of left Manaus feeling heartened because um, I had seen some of the organizing. I was speaking about a, about an indigenous uh, neighborhood in Manaus where a local nurse was, um, you know, took it upon herself basically to try to protect people and isolate people and educate people and and lobby the city for resources. And then, um, you know, everyone assumed that it, the worst had been passed and it was over. Uh, and studies came out saying that, you know, perhaps Manaus had even achieved herd immunity because it had been hit so bad the first time. And I think that that, um, you know that kind of really made people feel in Manaus and, and you know all of Brazil this the sense of of we've already been through it you know it's not going to happen again and then and then you know Manaus has been um, hit by a second wave that's that's even worse than the first and uh, and so seeing these you know stories of people. Uh, dying because they didn't have oxygen and that's what happened the second time is that they literally ran out of oxygen um, has been has been really sad for me and I, I I guess I mean the whole world has gone through this this sort of second wave that um, maybe some people predicted and others people were skeptical about and the level of preparation has varied in in, in different places but I think in, in Brazil it's particularly striking because uh, everyone is really on their own here that um, the, the federal government response has been so, Uh, So lacking that, um, you know, that that it has really dependent on just what the resources of a given city or a given neighborhood are. And so Sao Paulo, you know, Sao Paulo has been really awful, but I think people are still going out to bars and, and, you know, socializing and so on and so forth because they know like, well, if I get sick, there's good private hospitals here in Sao Paulo, I'll be fine. Whereas Manaus is, is you know, it, it's the middle of the jungle and, and seeing the kind of degree of, of helplessness um, after having been there and seen this real strength and, and uh, proactiveness uh, that not even that can, can kind of fend off this damn virus was really, was really striking and hard.
0: Sarah, I think um, I'm sure that in doing research for, for your work, you've come across a lot of issues that um, despite the existence of a couple of books, some of them may be written by academics, uh, members of our section, are there issues that you've come across that you would advise budding young graduate students to look at um, in terms of um, issues that need to be explored in greater detail or um, topics that um, you think uh, still need to be uh, further explored? Um,
1: The first thing that comes to mind is um, the issue of racism and policies, uh, you know, intending to address racism here in Brazil. I think this is a fascinating and complex and difficult and extremely relevant to the whole world topic. Um, and, And, you know the the times that my stories have sort of touched upon it. I've I've actually been really struck by um, you know not to say that the work that's been done isn't excellent. There's been some excellent work done, but there could be a much more done. I think there could be interesting comparative work done between uh, Brazil and the U.S. Um, or you know Brazil and 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 other countries. Um, and you know in particular, I think that you know one thing that's going to happen. I think it's next year in 2022 is the um, the the country is going to revise uh, their affirmative action laws, and whether they should, you know, continue to have affirmative uh, affirmative action or a preferential admission to federal universities, which a lot of states have then kind of used for state universities as well. And so, the, there's going to be, I imagine, a, a real kind of big societal uh, conversation going forward. And, and I'm sure, you know, p- politicians will try to influence it, and and you know, different kind of power. Uh, structures will try to influence it and you'll also see you know kind of grassroots campaigns but I I just think this could be a really interesting area to kind of try to look at and and I'm sure there's a lot of of data as well um, into you know what what changed and and, um, I could imagine combining that data with kind of interviews with people who are involved and, and getting something really cool out of it.
0: Great. Sarah, we always end by asking our guests to recommend one or two of their favorite places in the region, um, be it a bar, a restaurant, a bookstore, a music venue. Um, Hopefully we'll collect all of this and within a a year's time be able to put together a guide for when we can travel again, either for research or for pleasure, we'll be able to follow up on one of Sarah Maslin's recommendations. So what what would you share with us?
1: Okay, I'm gonna do it in in true guidebook style, which is you know the first if you come for a couple weeks, and then and the second if you just have a couple days. So that if you have a couple weeks, uh, I would highly suggest going to the Amazon and doing a boat journey. Um, there are you know river boats, passenger boats that are are not fancy but you can get a, a little air conditioned suite in them and travel between, I did um, from Manaus to Belang. It was five days and, and four nights and you pass through all of these little uh, towns and, and you, know, you speak to other people on the boat and it's, the, the kind of scenery changes and it's just an absolutely fascinating trip and, and not that many people do it, it's very cheap as well. Um, and, you know, if you have even more time, you can kind of get, you can buy a, a ticket that allows you to get off, spend a couple of days in, in, you know, some of these towns along the way and then get back on. Um, and then the other trip or that, sorry, the other recommendation, um, this is the two day version. If you're only popping into Sao Paulo for a couple of days, uh, if, the, if the situation allows, there's a great um, jazz bar in the center of town called Jazz Bee. Where they, it's a kind of a dinner bar, and you and you sit at a table, and they serve you very good food and drinks, and then you watch some of, of Brazil's best um, jazz musicians. Uh, and I guess in general, the whole center of of Sao Paulo is really kind of undergoing a transformation uh, with a lot of you know projects intended to kind of bring people back to this uh, sort of hip and 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 hipster and hippie place, um, you know that used to be so uh, important to Brazil, and then kind of went through a, a, a phase of deterioration, and now it's being. Um, I mean, I guess gentrified, but in a kind of cool way. So I would definitely recommend the Center of Sao Paulo.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you, Sarah, for a frank, wide ranging and stimulating discussion. We look forward to seeing you again soon. I also wanna thank our sound engineer, Gabi Santos in Sao Paulo, and my co-host behind the scenes, Fabricio Chagas Bastos. Tune in again next week for another episode of EconoPolitics. Until then, stay well, stay safe. Thanks so
1: much. Great to be here.